The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mordechai Dinnerman will now present his lecture, The Road to Happiness. The subject for today is a very important subject. It's about human happiness and emotional well-being. A very broad subject, one of which we're going to cover a small sliver of. I will point out that Hasidic teaching places tremendous emphasis on happiness. And therefore, the Hasidic sources over the past 200 years since the advent of the movement in Eastern Europe we have gained tremendous insight into many areas of human happiness from these Hasidic sources, and it is these sources that we're going to be examining today. There is source sheets on that table. This is going to be somewhat of a text-based class because there's going to be about six or seven quotes that we're going to be reading. I don't want you to trust that I'm, what I'm saying. I want you to see it in the actual sources. Uh, thereby, we, we're also doing a mitzvah, the mitzvah of learning Torah. Obviously, when you hear someone speak, uh, the, the mitzvah of learning Torah is being achieved, but it's the achievement of the mitzvah, I think at least, is, is uh, more significant when uh, we actually see, uh, we're actually reading a text on paper. I'm going to begin by saying that I once heard someone say, actually it was at a retreat one year, uh, uh, he was giving a talk on happiness, and he said something uh, along the following lines. In the secular world, happiness is the end goal. It's what we want. It's what makes life worth living for, to get, that, get to that end result of happiness. But in Judaism, it is not that way. In Judaism, happiness is a means that enables us to live the goal. What did he mean by that? What he meant by that is to say that in Judaism the goal is to be happy, which essentially means having a positive feelings. Well, that's not the goal in Judaism. The goal in Judaism is to serve God or any variation of saying something like that. So happiness, therefore, has to be minimized. Minimized to mean that it enables us to achieve what we want to achieve. But it is not the end goal. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to first build up his argument and explain where he's coming from. And then I'm going to proceed to explain why the sources I have seen imply otherwise. Okay? But first I'm going to build up his argument. So... In Tanya, in chapter 26, this is authored by the Alta Rebbe. The Alta Rebbe clearly says that happiness is an important means for serving God. So let's read it together and see. He offers an interesting simile. So that's text one. Truly, this should be made known as a cardinal principle. The internal spiritual battle waged against one's negative impulses is similar to a physical wrestling match. If two individuals are wrestling with each other, each striving to fell the other, but one is lazy and lethargic, he will fall and be easily defeated 
even if he is stronger than his opponent. The same applies regarding the conquest of one's impulses. It is impossible to defeat them from a state of laziness and heaviness, which stem from sadness and a dull heart, but only from a state of brisk enthusiasm, which derives from happiness and a heart free from any trace of worry and sadness in the world. What the Alta Rebbe is very concerned about in this text is that people be able to overcome their negative impulses. But people will not be able to overcome their negative impulses if they are in a sad state. Because when we're sad, we're emotionally heavy, we're not going to have that emotional strength to overcome these very powerful, sometimes destructive impulses that we have within us. And therefore, happiness is so important. Because when we're happy, we're lighter, we're stronger, and we'll have a much easier time fighting those internal drives that we need to fight and that we need to defeat. I think people would recognize the fact that on a day that they're in a bad mood is a day that it is much harder to keep their diet. And that's a simple illustration. On a day when they're in a very good mood and feeling really good about life and really good about themselves, it's easier to overcome those impulses for the cookies. And that's what the Alter Rebbe is saying here. And that's what one would mean if one were to say, happiness isn't the goal. That's not what we want. We're, we're not trying to be happy. That's not what we were put here in life for, to be happy people. We were put here in life for whatever it is. And the only... Or to put it this way, we're put here in life to overcome our negative traits and our negative characteristics and our negative impulses. And the only way to achieve that is through happiness. That's what we have here um, in the text of the Alter Rebbe. Now, by the way, what would the science behind this be of why happiness leads to this result? So I'm not going to talk to the science, per se, because I'm not a scientist. But Hasidus also asks this question, why is it that happiness gives you that advantage of strength that enables you to overcome the enemy? Whereas when you're in a, weakened when you're in a sad state, you're weaker. Why, why is that? How does one equal the other? So it's interesting, Hasidus speaks about the, the, you know, the defi definitions of happiness are often elusive. It's actually a fun exercise to do, to ask people, how do you de define happiness? And uh, the answers people give, it's, it's, it's a term that's in our every, everyday vernacular, and yet uh, for some reason we can't agree on what its meaning is. And that's for a discussion another time. Chassidus explains that simcha, the, you may have heard the term, uh, simcha overcomes boundaries. The, the definition of happiness in Chassidus is outwardness. Um, which means as follows, we're, we, we're, I'm going to use the Hasidic language here, we're created with a soul, and that soul has vast potentials. But those potentials, the way we're created, those potentials are kind of in a concealed state and locked up. And throughout life, we're often uh, living the balance between dealing with the fact that we're, we're trying to reveal those inner powers that we have within our soul. Uh, happiness is the state of openness where those inner powers are flowing outward. Um, we see it physically in the sense where shy people, for example, when they're very happy, suddenly become a little more talkative. That's that sense of outwardness 
that you see uh, in happiness. Uh, perhaps you see it uh, in general, people would be f more willing to share personal details about their own lives when they're happy. Again, that sense of outwardness. So Hasidus explains that our souls have vast stores of potential, but these are naturally concealed. And happiness is that state where these are flowing outward. And that would explain why we have this extra strength to overcome the negative impulses, is because we do have an added measure of soul power to our psyches uh, when we are in that state of happiness because of the fact that the gate, so to speak, locking our powers uh, b behind, uh, behind the, the, the walls of the soul have been breached. And therefore, that kind of is the Hasidic explanation for why we can have this result explained here. But, though that is clearly what it says in Tanya, in chapter 26, that happiness is a means to a very important end of serving God and overcoming negative inclinations, it is also true that there is a whole host of sources within Hasidus that when we put them all together, we're going to see another, an, a, a, a completely different understanding of, of happiness. And I am, the way this is best summed up is by a parable that was offered by one of the grandchildren of the Baal Shem Tov who wrote a sefer, one of the early Hasidic svarim to be uh, published, called Degel Machane Ephraim. And he has a beautiful, beautiful parable. And this parable is going to offer this alternative way of thinking about happiness that's predominant in the sources. So we'll read that parable together in text two. Uh, there were a few source sheets out on the table. Uh, they may have, uh, there may be none left, and I apologize if that's the case. Text two. The following parable I heard from my master, my grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov, a blessed memory. There was once a musician who began to play an exceedingly beautiful and sweet melody. Those who heard it were so enthralled by the music's beauty that they could not help but erupt in euphoric dance. Those who came closer to the musician and his mesmerizing music danced with even greater ecstasy and energy. A deaf person walked by and saw a group of people dancing. Wondering what there was to be so happy about, he concluded that the dancers had all gone mad. And he concludes as follows. If he would have known and understood that they were dancing because of their great pleasure in hearing the music, he too would have danced there as well. And then he says, the message is self-understood and he doesn't go on. Usually when you have a parable, you then spend time on developing what the message is. And here he just concludes, says, the message is self-understood, which is good for lecturers because that gives us a lot of leeway to kind of use it <laughs> however we want. No, but what I'm going to say, I think, is, is, is consistent with what his message is. What's he trying to say here? He's trying to say here is that there is a certain reality outside of us. And that's a reality. And anyone who's in tune with that reality, the natural response is dance. The natural response is happiness. The problem is that we are often deaf to that reality that's outside us. And therefore, on the contrary, to be happy is a sign of being a little off. 
And the deaf person, unfortunately, views these dancers as, as being completely requiring some form of therapy because why are they behaving the way they're behaving? And he uses here the language saying, the closer they get to the stage of the music or to the musicians playing, the, the, the more passionate they get in their dance, which is actually something we actually saw last night, right? The, the closer the people were to the, to the singers and the music, the, the, the more passionately they were dancing. And the reason he's saying that is because that's crucial for the message of the parable as well, in that there's that truth. It's not an all or nothing. It's the closer we are in t to the truth, the more sensitive we are to that truth, the, the more happy we are, and naturally so. And the further we are, the less happy we are. So what's the point? The point is then, I can say, and we can all say, happiness is not just a means to an end. Happiness is a symptom of being in touch with reality. If someone is unhappy, according to Hasidic sources, it means they're not in tune to the truth of what's going on around them and what's going on within them. And that's very, very unfortunate. If someone is not in tune to the world, and to themselves, and to the truth of these things, that's very sad. And if someone is in tune with, those, with these realities, the person is automatically happy. So happiness is no longer just a means to an end. It is that too. It's also a means. We're not negating what we saw earlier from chapter 26 in Tanya. But it is much more than that. Because it's indicative. It's the barometer. It's the symptom by which we know a person is living the truth. And we could discuss so many uh, aspects of what does it mean living the truth and how does that result in happiness and I want to focus on three or four particular points today. All of these points are going to be expressions of this music that exists around us that we at times fail to listen to and that we, which we have to train ourselves to open our ears to listening to that music. So I'm going to begin by talking about um, perhaps one of the areas that's more difficult and uh, it's one of the challenges to happiness is the daily stressors in life because everyone faces them and they're a constant barrage against our emotional well-being. In fact, there was a poet whose name was Charles Bukowski who wrote a poem called The Shoelace. And in this poem he wrote like this, it's not the large things that send a man to the madhouse. No, it's the continuing series of small tragedies that send a man to the, mad to the madhouse. Uh, he goes, uh, the dread of life is that swarm of triviality, oh, this is a hard word, trivialities that can kill quicker than cancer and which are always there. License plates, taxes, or expired driver's license, hiring or firing, and he goes on and on. The, the premise of his point is, I don't know, is that you know, often we spend a lot of time and a lot of emotional energy thinking about the real big tragedies that happen in life, and those should never be belittled. But sometimes that may mean that we're letting our guard down from the fact that the daily stressors that we all face in life, those can be quite taxing on our, on our emotional well-being. And um, 
And that, obviously, uh, that's something that we need to be thinking about in terms of our happiness. Now, Hasidic sources do teach us something about reality, the reality of these stressors that we need to take into consideration. Now, what we're going to be saying now is not easy. Nothing's easy, but it's feasible. And we'll introduce this concept by saying a story. Um, it's in keeping with the Hasidic tradition that when we teach Hasidus, it's, it's often with a story. Story is very powerful. So there was a very famous Hasid whose name was Reb Hillel of Parich. He was from the first gen- young uh, Hasidim students of the Alta Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, and then of the second one, and then of the third one. And he had a following of uh, his own, so to speak, because he was really... Uh, something special. And one of his students' name was uh, Rabbi Shalom Humaner. And the story that we're going to be reading now is about Rabbi Shalom Humaner. And in your source sheets, it's text three. So it reads, this is as reported by the previous Chabad Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schnerson, the sixth Chabad Rabbi, tells us this story about Rabbi Shalom. So the story goes as follows. When Rabbi Hillel used to travel, he would take along his student, Rabbi Shalom Humaner. One evening, they came to an inn in Ukraine. Um, and by the way, in the Yiddish here, it, uh, the word for Ukraine is Malarasia, which means small Russia. So this is, the reason this became relevant is because in the Russian-Ukrainian politics that exists right now, there are, there are, there are some Russians who want to argue that Ukraine is part of Russia. And there is that historical term where Russians would call Ukraine Malarasia. So I found it uh, interesting that the, the Friedrich Rebbe used that term here. Uh, be that as it may. One e- evening they came to an inn in Ukraine. Reb Shalom began the evening prayer uh, and spent such a long time meditating and praying that morning came. Okay, so here we need to pause and just talk about prayer in the Hasidic tradition. Um, Prayer in the Hasidic tradition is not a moment to say, God, I need a financial uh, rescue from you. Uh, I'm having trouble with an insurance claim. Can you please help me? Prayer is much more than a request. Prayer is about fostering a relationship and a moment of, of, of unity with Hashem. Once that is the case, it is self-understood that people who are quite passionate about that would spend more than just 15 minutes in that moment of communication because if I'm communicating with God and connecting with God and trying to foster a relationship with Him, then why not spend more time? And obviously the more one studies theology and thinks about these things, the more the possibility is for that prayer to extend for multiple hours. And here you're talking about someone who is a real devoted chassid, and therefore his evening prayer, which I would say for the average Jew today takes about 10 to 15 minutes, took him a whole night. Now, I don't know if this was in the summer, uh, where, where at least some places in Ukraine, it's not that way, but in some places in Russia, you know, uh, nightfall can be 1 o'clock in the morning, or was this in the winter where nightfall can be as early as 3.30 in the afternoon? We don't know, but you'll see it's not really going to be relevant in a minute because either way uh, it's going to work out on the other end. So let's go continue in the story. So, um, uh, so how can one lie down to sleep? Right? So, so he prayed, spent such a long medita- meditating and praying that morning came. So how can one lie down to sleep? 
uh, after such a, a prayer. Uh, so Rabbi Shalom sent to set to prepare himself for the morning prayers, taking an hour or more. So now I'm going to daven shachris, the morning prayers. So, but you can't just daven, you can't just pray. You have to prepare, right? You, pre you prepare before an important business meeting. How much more so uh, do you need to prepare before a, a, a conversation with God? So you then reciting the morning prayers, and this took the entire day. All right, so I'm good. <laughs> By the time he came to Shema, uh, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad, it was already time for the afternoon prayer because uh, nightfall was about to thing. So the innkeeper was a simple villager. Now, since the starting of the 17th century uh, and continuing up until really the Second World War, there were many Jews living in Eastern Europe who were quite ignorant, even illiterate. There's a long historical explanations for how that developed, but that was a reality. You had the simple folk. Um, and the innkeeper here was, was one such Jew. And uh, the, so let's continue. The innkeeper, a simple villager, came to recite the afternoon prayer. Uh, he was a God-fearing Jew. He came to Davin himself. And he saw that Rabshalom was still in the middle of his morning prayers. So he cried out, What is it with this Jew? Last night, he spent the whole night praying. And now, he has prayed the whole day. I'm different. I can just say Shema Yisrael, unlike this man who takes so long. There's only one way to understand what's going on over here. This man is a simpleton. He can't, be, he can't really read. It takes him all day to read his prayers. It takes him all night to read his prayers. How unfortunate. Even I'm able to do it quicker than that. All right. So this sounds like just one great misunderstanding. It should never turn into a Hasidic story. Why did it turn into a Hasidic story? So let's continue reading. Reb Shalom had already completed his prayers and heard what the villager had said. Now remember, his teacher is Rabbi Hillel of Parach. Reb Hillel said afterwards, three years of studying the teachings of Hasidism with Reb Shalom did not have as much of an effect on him in terms of self-improvement as these words of the simple villager. So he had, Reb Shalom had one of the best Hasidic teachers a person could dream to have, Reb Hillel of Parach. And Reb Hillel of Parach studied with Reb Shalom for three years, trying to impress upon him certain things and encourage him to grow and to change and to improve. And yet the three years that Reb Hillel worked, it didn't, it's not that it was completely ineffective, but this line that he heard from the innkeeper uh, had a profound effect on him. What, well, what does that mean, had a profound effect on him? What does that mean? So this story is not an outlier in, in the Hasidic tradition. It's actually very well represented in many other places. And there's a background to this. And the background to this is that everything that occurs to a person is with a purpose. One of the cardinal teachings of the Baal Shem Tov is that there is even something I hear from someone else there is purpose laden within those words. Because if there were no purpose for me, I wouldn't have heard it. Maybe he would have said it, but I wouldn't have heard it if there was no purpose. Because every single detail is orchestrated in life. This was a key teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. And Reb Shalom took that very seriously. And other Hasidim took that very seriously. So what happens if you take that teaching seriously, that everything that occurs has purpose for me? If you take that seriously, and you're taking off your talus and tefillin, 
having prayed for 24 hours straight. And you hear someone say, oh, what an ignoramus you are. You can barely read. If you're purpose-driven, if you're trained that way, what do you do? You obviously say, there's a message for me there. Well, what's that message? We don't know. It's not told to us in the story. But obviously something about how I need to be better. Something about how maybe this person didn't intend it, and he didn't intend it. Because he intended what he intended. And what he intended, he's wrong. But in those words, there's some message for me. And, he t and somehow, you know, sometimes that 140 uh, character tweet can convey more punch than an entire essay. And that seems to what happened here. That, that little message, though again, he meant one thing, but he kind of heard a much broader and deeper message being conveyed, that encouraged him to grow. So if this is a perspective, if this is a perspective that we can adopt, that changes the way we deal with frustration. Because clearly, by the way, this was a frustrating incident. I mean, some people just brush it off and just, and just laugh it off. Okay, what do you know? You don't really know anything. But some people are more sensitive. And when they hear criticism, it actually bothers them. And for those and many of us probably sitting here, some of us are more sensitive to criticism, some less. So for some of us, that, this may qualify as a frustrating incident. And if not this, something else. And the question is how we're going to deal with that. Because as we mentioned earlier, the fact is that this can wear us down. These types of things can wear us down. The small injury, the traffic jam, the meeting that was canceled, whatever it may be. But if we're trained, and this is not something, by the way, that when the problem starts, so we can start adopting this mindset. It has to be something that we're trained this way. This is the way we live our lives. So then intuitively, we react this way when we face a particular challenge. Then within the challenge, we say, what is the message here? How can I grow from this? And there's been really interesting studies I've seen where they've put college kids through various different stressors. And one group just experienced it as random, random stresses that one just has to deal with. And another group was explained how these stressors were important for their growth. And they were able to see that in the second group, they were, had a much easier time dealing with those stress. Because as there's a famous quote from Nietzsche, that said, who said, if you, he, I'm going to mess it up, but you'll get the point. He who has the why can bear almost any how. This was made famous by Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He who has the why can bear almost any how. Meaning when it feels random, when the suffering is random, and I'm not, I don't want to use the word suffering because I want to use the word stress because that's something that's more relevant on a daily basis. So when the stress is random, it's extremely frustrating. And it definitely wears us down. But let's come back to the parable of the music. The parable of music says, if you're in tune with reality, you're happy. 
if you're in tune with reality in the Hasidic perspective means if you're in tune to reality that this is not random. If you're in tune to reality that there's a message here for you, for your growth, there is a why. And it's your job to find it. Now once when I was speaking about this, someone said, aren't you saying then that a person should be passive in the face of bullying given this particular story? No, because Reb Shalom owned the story. He heard something and he interpreted it for himself. And he was in control of that interpretation. Because he knew what he needed to do to serve God better. He knew what his flaws were. And he took that message and tailored it to himself. That's not being a, vo- a victim to, bu- to bullyhood, if that's a word, uh, whatsoever. So that's my first area, and this I'm concluding my first point, is the Hasidus gives us a lifestyle, a framework, a philosophical framework that allows us and encourages us to see stress, stressors as opportunities for growth, and that allows us, and if we fail to do that, in other words, if we get upset by these stressors, And if they're a challenge to our happiness, then that, in a sense, is indicative of the fact that we're not in tune to this divine providence reality that uh, that we are supposed to, uh, to the degree that we're supposed to. And that's something that, obviously, as I said earlier, nothing's easy. This is just as challenging to live this way. It's a huge challenge. But life's challenging. Even physical life is challenging. So spiritual life... And personal development is also challenging. The question isn't whether it's challenging. The question is whether it's feasible. And it is. Now, I want to now move to the self. Because one of the things that's quite obvious is that people can be blessed with so much good in their lives. But if they look at at themselves in the mirror, and what they see, when they look at the mirror, what they see back is something that they see as rotten, they're obviously not going to be able to be happy in life. And we live, people have been pointing out over the last few decades how there's this, what people have spoken about, self-esteem problem, uh, where, uh, and you hear it both ways, by the way. There's a problem with people with low self-esteem. Then you hear it the other way. Oh, these kids, they think way too much of themselves. Okay, so and and but I want to focus on the the the, the low self esteem, so to speak. And here too, Hasidus would say the same thing. If a person looks in the mirror and sees back something ugly, if a person cannot live with themselves, if a person is not comfortable in their own skin, then they're not in tune with reality. So what's the reality? So there's this fascinating quote from Rabbi Tzadik Cohen Rabinowitz uh, in his, uh, who says the following, and that's text four you have on your, in your sheets. And this encapsulates so well what you have written in so many other places as well. He's, he wrote as follows. Just as we must believe in God, so too we must afterward believe in ourselves, that God cares about us, that we are not worthless laborers, that we possess divine souls, and that God takes pleasure and joy when we fulfill his desire. I mean, the vi- think about it. The, 
the, the, some of the most existential questions are addressed by the Torah, in where it says, God created you, he put you here for a purpose, you're not here as a worthless laborer. Even, you know, sometimes people think about a mitzvah as it's just God trying to test us. And if it's just God trying to test us, then essentially we're worthless laborers. You know, I want to see if you're dedicated to me. Okay, so do this, right? But that you're not really accomplishing anything with that. I know that Rabbi Friedman talks to this point very often. And what we see here is, no, we're not worthless laborers. God takes pleasure and joy when we fulfill his desire. We possess divine souls. So in other words, we are really something spectacular, and what we accomplish is really something spectacular. So how can a person be sad about themselves? Well, obviously it means they're not in tune with this. Now, that could be for many different reasons, and that's understandable. But our goal is to get back in touch with these teachings, with this idea. If we fail to appreciate this, that means we're not living the truth. Now, what about the fact, though, that by definition, Judaism has a list of rules, and it gives, thus giving you the opportunity to break those rules, thus giving you the opportunity to be, so to speak, a transgressor, which would make you feel terrible. One may say that the system of the Torah, perhaps, is a recipe for a low self-esteem, given the fact that it's challenging, we're human, we err, so the very presence of these rules generate these feelings of this self-dissatisfaction. So I want to read with you text 5, a fascinating quote by the Rebbe. He says like this, There is a well-known teaching of the Rebbe's of Chabad. And this is the quote of the teaching of, pre of previous Chabad Rebbe's. Just, and we need to pay attention to the detail and the wording here, just as we need to know the defects, so too we need to know our strength. What's this teaching saying on a simple level? Just as we need to know what our problems are in order to fix them, we also need to know what are the good side, what our strengths are. But listen to the, to the language because it said, just as we need to know the defects, it didn't say just as we need to know our defects, so too we need to know our strength. Notice how the language is not parallel. It's just as we need to know the defects, so too we need to know our strengths. That's the teaching. So the Rebbe develops this and he says, the anomaly in, the fr in this phrase is that it says our strengths. But with regard to defects, it merely says the defects, not our defects. What is the reason for this? The Rebbe explains, Leviticus 4.2 states, when a soul sins and, discuss and discusses the process of rectification. The Zohar, however, phrases this as a question of bewilderment. A soul sinned? Is that possible? Why is that a question? So the Rebbe explains, meaning, the entire concept of sin is completely alien to our being. Even when we stumble, God forbid, it does not undermine who we are. Rather, it is something outside of our nature that has latched onto us. We are citizens of a material and a mundane world, and it is therefore possible for something unholy to attach itself to us. Though it is a defect, in a sense it is not our defect, but a defect imposed by our environment. What the Rebbe is saying here is, of course, we're responsible for what we do. No one's saying not. 
Of course, sometimes we, pay, we have to pay the consequences for our choices. No one is saying not. But the word our, mine, that's a very powerful word. That's attaching what I do to my very essence and my very core. And that's something that we cannot do with defects. Because really at the core, the soul that we spoke about in the previous text is perfect. It just happens to be because we live that this soul has been vested into this physical world. And this physical world comes with all of its problems. And we, therefore it attracts us to certain things that go against our nature. So even as we're responsible, at the same time, there has to be a sense of delinking that which we do that is unnatural to ourselves. And you get that in the language. Strengths, you know, we have, who gives you the right to have the best of both worlds? You know, it's like, it's like the politicians when the, when the economy is doing well or the stock market is doing well, they say, oh, it's because of my policies. When it's doing bad, they say, well, it's nothing to do with me. These are outside forces, right? Or previous administrations, that's the way it works, right? And here we're having that type of double standard. Because when it comes to defects, you say, a soul sinned? Is it possible? It's not really the soul. It's the outside forces that got into the soul's head. When it comes to strengths, we say, our strengths. But there's a reason for that. Because strengths, advantages, that is soul stuff. That's what the soul wants, that's what the soul is, and that's what you want, that's what you are. So it's yours. But the defects is not. If we're in tune with this, which is the reality, the way Hasidah sees it, we're happy. If we're not in tune with this, we may be doing a lot of mitzvahs, but we're not in tune with reality. And we are unhappy because yesterday, you know what I did yesterday? You know what I did the week before? So when you take these two teachings together from Reb Tzadok HaKoyim, and what the Rebbe spoke about here. This offers us a shift in perspective for the self-concept. Instead of a flawed self-concept, there is, I'm not going to say a high self-esteem, I want to say an accurate self-concept, a truthful self-concept. And the happiness results from that. Now, what's very important in this context is... And this is probably most important today when people talk about the self and the self-esteem. For a person to sit down and to say, I am going to now contemplate my greatness and the fact that I have this soul and the fact that God has chosen me to be a soldier in his army to accomplish something in this world and the fact that my core is all good and great, and therefore sin is something I have to deal with, but it's not me. It's not the true me. And therefore, let me sit down and contemplate my greatness. Well, that too is not being in tune with reality. Because the reality is that we were not created to contemplate our greatness. And we were not created to have a high self-esteem. And therefore, it is not within the DNA of this world. We're, 
to use that as a means for sat uh, emotional satisfaction. And I want to introduce this, this point, through this famous Talmudic stor story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was a famous sage. He lived through the destruction of the temple. He made the audacious choice to flee the city of Jerusalem to set up the academy at Yavna, controversial at the time, being that many of the Jews felt they, the right place to be was in Rome, fighting the Romans and each other. And on his deathbed, he uttered the phrase, you know, once I die, I don't know which direction I'm going in the afterlife, whether to Gan Eden or to a different place. And, you know, sub subsequent commentaries were always bewildered by the fact that, why did he say that? What was he so, I mean, he's such a great sage. Why, why would he express such self-doubt? No, now, there have been some historians who I've seen who've written, oh, it was self-doubt over his choice to leave Jerusalem to go to Yavna, that he had self-doubt about that. There's, that's baloney. There's, there's no evidence that there was any self-doubt on his part about that, nor is there any evidence that there was any doubt by any of the sages by that time. Hasidus explains what was happening was the Rabbi Yochanan was in tune with reality. Reality was, I'm created for a purpose. Given that I'm created for a purpose, every moment of life needs to be driven by the following question. What is my purpose during this moment? And if a person is so oriented toward purpose, that means a person doesn't have the time to sit back and reflect to say, what have I done and where am I going? Now this obviously sounds tremendous and overwhelming almost to think about a person who's so motivated in that way. Well, that's why Rabbi Yochanan Bezaka is one of the greats. But the, per the point is that throughout life, he did not sit down to say, well, let me contemplate my position on the chessboard. Where am I? Where are the others? Where are we going? What's going on? He, that wasn't him. He was very, or, he, he was mission-oriented, and he lived at a crucial time and where there was every second another thing to do. Remember, you're talking about the transition from Jews from a temple-based uh, society to the, to the society that we have today. Transitions are very painful and require a lot of work. And he was the one who led the effort. Purpose-driven to the extent of not having the time to say, what have I done? What have been my flaws? What have been the good things? And what outweighs what? And so he had that moment right before he was passing away when, he was, when, is the right time, when it was the right time to consider his life that's when he had that moment of reflection. And this is very important. And Hasidus speaks about the fact, and you have this in text 6, where, and he uses this parable often. It says, when someone senses his head or one of his limbs, it indicates illness. A healthy person does not feel his limbs, and the same applies in a spiritual sense. So if we're sitting down and we're thinking about, oh, Hasidus teaches how we're so special and we're so great, and if we're doing that, we're, we're probably actually not in touch with reality because we're not in touch with the purpose for which we were created, which is the reality. Or to say it in other terms, we then make ourselves into beings who are honor-seeking, but that's not who we are. We're not honor-seeking 
human beings. We're purpose-seeking human beings. So if we're in touch with that goal-oriented truth, there is a chance for happiness. So this is an important balance in the self-concept. On the one hand, we need to have these teachings that we saw earlier. The soul, we're here, we're not a worthless laborer, we're here with a purpose, God takes joy in every choice that we make. The defects are not ours, they don't define us, they're something we have, but they're not us. We need to have that knowledge. We're therefore fantastic people. But that's kind of like back-in-the-head knowledge. It's not supposed to be front and center in our mind. And there I would say, actually, we spoke before about the low self-esteem and the high self-esteem. The common denominator between both people is that they're consumed with themselves. Overly consumed with themselves. And just one comes to one conclusion and the other comes to another conclusion. And both of them are equally as flawed in that regard because, as we said, tune into that reality. Yes, have that greatness there in the back of your mind. But what motivates you and what drives you and what's on your conscious, what's pushing you in a, your conscious moments is being, tu being in tune with that purpose. And when we have this combination, that's, Hasidus would say, you're in touch with reality reality of who you are, reality of why you were created, the result will be happiness. So again, happiness is not just a means to an end. Happiness is a symptom of the fact that you know who you are and why you're here. That's the second example. Third example. And this will be, be the final example with which we'll conclude, though you can go on and on in the same way with many examples. One of my favorite Talmudic passages Talmud Brachot says the following. And let's read this very, very closely. And again, language and the nuance of language is going to be very important for our interpretation of this text. The Talmud speaks about a good guest and a bad guest. It says like this. What does a good guest say? It goes like this. So we're talking about someone who's invited over for a meal. Let's say I invite a few people over to a meal. By the way, for the, the illustration of... Uh, for the purpose of the illustration of this, par of this parable, let's envision it this way. I invite a few people over to my house and two, two guests. And then my, so I have my, my wife and children are sitting around the table and these two guests come. One is the Talmud's going to call the good guest. One the Talmud's going to call the bad guest. And we have a meal together. What does the good guest say? He goes, how much trouble the host took for my sake. How much meat he brought before me. How much wine he brought before me. How many fine rolls he brought before me. And all the trouble that my host took was only for my sake. That's the good guest. Now let's read the bad guest and let's compare the language. Fascinating. What does a bad guest say? What trouble did this host take? I ate one piece of bread. I ate one slice. I drank one cup. Any trouble that this host took was only for his wife and children. The central tension between the good guest and the bad guest, the central issue is, what was this dinner about? Did, I'm using me as the host, did I have dinner anyway and then have extra food and therefore 
invited the guest, but didn't really do anything for him? Or would it have been the case that were it not for the guest, I would have, you know, put a knish in the microwave and would have eaten that? Now that the guest came, I put out a whole meal. That's what these two guests are disagreeing about. They, they don't know, right? They don't have data to be able to kind of know what the truth is. It's ambiguous. So the good guest says, it's all for me. He assumes, he, is, he judges the host favorably, and he assumes it was all done for me. Because were it not for my presence at the table, something small would have been served. But for me, he did the, all of this, the host. He's very grateful. The bad guest assumes the opposite. Nothing was done for me. He just made a meal for his kids. That's the central difference between the good guest and the bad guest. But there are more differences between them that you may have noticed with the language. If we had time, it would kind of be fun to go around to see what you notice, but we don't, so therefore I'll do it for you. Notice how in the first, uh, the good guest says, how much trouble the host took for my sake. So he's saying two things. The host troubled himself for me. Two things. A, acknowledging that he troubled himself. B, that he did so for me. Compare that to the bad guest. What trouble did the host take? He denies both. He definitely didn't do anything for me. He didn't even trouble himself. Okay, let's continue. How, look how the good guest says, how much meat he brought before me. Let's compare that to the bad guest. I ate one... Oh, okay, let's do it the other way. He's for, how much meat... He, uh, he, uh, how much meat he brought before me, how much wine he brought before me, what's he focusing on? What was brought before him? The, the serving dish. The serving dish with so much food. He focuses not on what he ate. He focuses on what he could have eaten, what was offered to him. Look at the bad guest. He goes, I ate only one piece of bread. I ate one slice. I drank one cup. He's not focusing on what was offered to him, what was put out on the table. He focuses only on what he ate which is obviously much less. The good guest mentions meat first, then wine, then rolls. Meat's expensive, wine is relatively expensive, bread is less so. So what does he mention first? He mentions first what's most expensive, making it prominent, putting it right up there. In his, in his mind, it's right, you know, he's having all these positive thoughts about his host. What did the bad guest do? He starts off with the bread. And then he doesn't even mention meat. He goes, I ate one slice. He's referring to meat, but he can't, get, he can't get his mouth to even say that he got meat from this host. I drank one cup. He can't get his mouth to say wine. What's going on over here? You have two, you have two typologies of human beings. You have that human being who is always interpreting the data around him in a negative way. It's called cynicism. One of those traits that Chassidus hates. Everything interpreted in the most negative way. Ah, he would have prepared this meal anyway. I only ate one piece. Using ambiguous language to kind of almost forget that it was meat and wine. Doing everything he could doing everything he could to not be happy, to not feel like a favor was done. This person lives a miserable life, this bad guest. 
Everything around him is terrible. He never has friends who are doing him favors. No one's ever doing anything for him. Everyone is always acting in their self-interest. And he never benefits anything from anybody. Such a person's obviously miserable. And by the way, he doesn't only think this way toward other human beings. He thinks this way about God as well. Because it's hardwired. I want to say it's hardwired. He wired himself to be this way. And as we know, there are many teachings. One who fails to be grateful toward a human being eventually forgets God. Famous teaching about they forget Joseph, and then they say, Pharaoh forgets Joseph and is ungrateful to Joseph. Step two, he forgets God. It's, and same with parents. Why, why is honor thy father and mother on the tablet to the right that has all of the, the first tablet that has all of the between man and God commandments. Seemingly it's between human beings. So there's many explanations. One of the explanations is you're grateful toward parents. You have that trait built into you. You'll be grateful toward God as well. You're ungrateful to your parents. You're probably going to be ungrateful to God as, as well. This negative guest here is living a miserable life. I wouldn't say any of us in this room are this negative guests, but we definitely have moments in which we are, in which we just interpret what our friends and even non-friends, regular people, and God, we just don't interpret it in a way that gives them the benefit of the doubt. And it minimizes what they have been doing for us. And no longer are we connected to a strong network of people who love and care for us. The good guest, the good guest is such a happy person. Every moment in life, look what this person did for me. Interpreting the data in such a favorable way, we're commanded to do so. But also, not hiding, you know, not, not being that ostrich with the head in the sand, hiding from the truth about what's being offered to him. With all the benefits in life that God has given us. This too is the same point we've been talking about throughout the duration of this talk. Reality. Being in touch with reality. The reality is that every single one of us sitting, uh, is sitting in this room has been the benefit of immeasurable good, both by God and by other human beings. And if we only took time to appreciate that and to think about that and to cherish that and to savor that. Number one, we're in tune with the truth. And number two, the symptom of that would be a feeling of great happiness. For number one, we wouldn't be taking all these benefits for granted. And number two, we sense that someone cares for us. The Rebbe was a good guest. There is one example that jumps, comes to mind. And uh, it was the tail end of President Carter's uh, presidency. Now he, President Carter obviously was a one-term president. So when he went out, he didn't go out on a high note at all. Uh, a lot of his base turned against him. Uh, he faced a lot of criticism. He, I, I believe he had a, um, a rival in, from the Democratic Party even. Meaning he, he, had to, he faced a primary, he won it, 
but that means he really was very weakened, even by his own base of support. And he was strongly criticized by so many. And at the end of his presidency, it was like in vogue. That's what everyone did. You Carter bashed. And obviously, Jews, especially Jews who, were, who had problems with the way he treated Israel and Jews who uh, did not support uh, how he dealt with Israel in terms of the Camp David Accords, they were definitely in on the fun as well. Now, you may be aware of the fact that the Rebbe was not happy with the Camp David Accords, and the Rebbe criticized it uh, vociferously on numerous occasions. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Rebbe said uh, in his last, the waning weeks of his presidency, the Rebbe um, mentioned it was improper what was going on in the country, the fever of condemning President Carter because no one sought believed they would get any political favors for him in the future. So no, there was no benefit in saying something nice about him. Uh, one did not have anything to gain politically from it, and one had everything to gain from criticizing. And the Rebbe felt that the criticism crossed the line in which he wasn't being appreciated for the good things that he did. And the Rebbe felt that it was important to point out the good things that he did. Namely, he kept us out of the war. He kept us out of a war with the Soviets. Now, here again, there were many people who just, well, yeah, he, it wasn't him, it was his uh, national security advisor, it was someone else, or he may be. You can always interpret data. You can always flip it one way or another. But the Rebbe was a good guest. And the Rebbe continued to say, and by the way, I'm going to continue to criticize the Camp David Accords, and I strongly disagree, and I disapprove of what he did. But at the end of the day, this fever of condemnation is disgusting. And he has to be, we have to call, call out and appreciate and recognize the good things that he did for us. And what's important about this and the novelty of this, and this requires more research, is that the bad things that people do don't cancel out their good. And we human beings have a very hard time with that. You'll be grateful to someone who's good. Maybe you'll be the good guest when someone is good to you. Maybe you won't, you won't kind of be a cynic. But what if someone did one nice thing to you and one not nice thing to you? We then tend to throw everything out. And we have a very hard time being grateful for the good. But a good guest is one who's grateful for the good, who's not cynical, and who takes, always appreciates the good, even if it's coming from someone who gave bad as well. So in sum, my third point is, Essentially, what Helen Keller famously said so many years ago when she wrote, only the deaf appreciate hearing. Only the blind realize the manifold blessings that lie in sight. Their eyes and ears take in all the sights and sound hazily. Without, I'm saying, the, the eyes and ears of people who are, norm, are, health, are healthy take in all the sights and sound hazily without concentration and with little appreciation. It is the same old story of not being grateful for what we have until we lose it, of not being conscious of health until we are, we are ill. I have often thought it would be a blessing if each human being were stricken blind and deaf for a few days at some time during his early adult life. Darkness would make him more appreciative of, light, of, of sight, and silence would teach him the joys of sound. Obviously, Rabbi Lau's speech on Shabbos touched on this point. Recently, I was visited by a very good friend, who had just returned from a long walk in the woods, and I asked her what she had observed. 
Nothing in particular, she replied. I might have been incredulous had I not been accustomed to such responses, for long ago I became convinced that the seeing see little. So just to reiterate the basic point, we started today by asking the question, what is happiness according to Hasidus? And we put out the theory that happiness is just a means to an end in order to serve God and to overcome our negative impulses. And while that is true, that happiness is a means to an end for that, and that's one of the reasons it's very important, we cannot limit it to that. Happiness is also very important in Hasidus because it is a sign that a person is in tune with truth. Specifically, we spoke about the truth of divine providence, thereby reinterpreting stressors as moments of opportunities for growth. We spoke about truth in terms of the self-concept of who we are, what we are here to do, how God cherishes us, and how our defects are not ours in the, in the sense of the essential self, and how uh, we are created to be purposeful beings, not honor-seeking beings. And finally, in the sense of being the good guest, the good guest tuning into the reality that we are surrounded by good guests, the good guests, both the fellow human beings that we have in our lives, as well as uh, God Almighty and all of the wonderful things he has done. And that's just in terms of the physical things, definitely in terms of all the spiritual opportunities we have in life, by the way, are also these wonderful blessings that we sometimes fail to take in consideration. So happiness, therefore, is so important because it shows us, it teaches us, it allows us to know that the person is connected to reality in the way Hasidus sees it. And it's no surprise, therefore, that happiness is so important to Hasidus, and page upon page of Hasidic writing is dedicated to this particular topic. Anyway, this is my final talk here at the retreat. Thank you very much for your participation. And um, may everyone have a blessed rest of the summer. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.